The Doctrine of Discovery is the current system of laws and policies that justify the removal of land from indigenous peoples. These laws are rooted in church doctrines that originated in the 15th century. Together, we will uncover this deep structure of colonization that systematically deprives indigenous peoples of human rights. I'm Sherry Hostetler, and I help start a coalition of Anabaptist people of faith that seek to dismantle the doctrine of discovery. I'm also a Mennonite pastor in San Francisco. I'm Sarah Augustine, and I also help to start this coalition. As an activist and scholar, I am the descendant of the Tewa people and a displaced person. This is the Dismantling the Doctrine of Discovery podcast. What you are about to hear is hard to hear. Although we won't go into detail, we are going to be talking about physical and sexual abuse, as well as other acts of violence. Last episode, we did a whirlwind overview of what I might call the deep structure of colonization in the United States. Specifically, we looked at the different policy eras of U.S. Indian policy. And just saying it that way makes it sound almost bland and benign, but those policy eras were anything but. They systematically and deliberately were designed to steal Native land and to destroy Native culture. And so we're going to return now to Sarah's story of how she discovered the doctrine of discovery and its impact on her life. Good morning, Sarah. Hi, good morning, Sherry. So I think you were going to talk about how you learned about the doctrine of discovery when you were working with indigenous and tribal people in the Guianas. And I think maybe, how did you end up there? How did you end up in Suriname? Sure. So I'll just start by saying that the Guiana Shield is uh, some small countries in the northern tip of, of South America, just north of Brazil. So sometimes people don't don't really know where that is. So that's called the Greenstone Belt region of the Amazon Basin. And so I started working there because a friend of mine that I knew from church was working there as an environmental advisor to the U.S. Embassy. And he was working, um, he's a toxicologist, and he was working with the impact of mining on the environment. And so he very quickly realized that there were indigenous people living there in the forest that were being impacted by this mining as well. And he had questions about um, about how to deal with that ethically. And so he called me because we knew each other, we'd work together on church projects. He gave me a call and said, hey, would you be interested in coming here to uh, to be a part of this? And so that's how, that's how I was originally introduced to the work there. To make a long story short, you know, ultimately he and I got married. So that, that person is Dan, my husband. <laughs> that was a that was a consequential trip. <laughs> yeah, well, it, it was later actually that I learned about what the doctrine of discovery was, but I think that working in Suriname and then later in French Guiana in that region, that's when I really started to understand what the doctrine of discovery is and how it has had an impact on indigenous and tribal people in the Guianas and the similarities between that story and and my own story being an indigenous woman in the United States. And so in the beginning, you know, the reason I even found out about the Doctrine of Discovery, because like a lot of people, I never learned about it in school. I, I didn't know anything about it. But I was trying to figure out why it was legal for indigenous people to live 
in this area that they had always inhabited, or at least for, you know, many, many generations. You know, first of all, they didn't have land rights. And second of all, they had no control or even a say in, in, in the kind of extractive industry that's going on there. So I was trying to figure that out. We wanted to intervene in that environment, and we wanted to to figure out how to advocate in, in a good way for the people living there. And so I started digging. Digging. digging, digging. beginning, it was like, oh, well, you know, this is a developing nation, so they just haven't figured out how to have equitable policy for the indigenous people yet. You know, assuming that we did have some kind of equitable policy in the United States. So I started digging, trying to figure that out. And that was really how I came to terms with the international law, which is really rooted in the doctrine of discovery that explains that the European states who really colonized the world, they, under the doctrine, were the only ones who had the right to discovery. So any country that they landed on, whoever was the first to land there would have the claim, that they could claim it as their own. And um, those original claims are still the basis for land rights until today. that to me, I think I was like, what? <laughs> so you're saying that if I was a Portuguese explorer and I quote unquote discovered, I guess, you know, the area that's now Suriname and French Guiana and planted the Portuguese flag there. In this case, it was actually the Dutch, correct? It was the Dutch, right? Mm -hmm. it was the Dutch. Okay. So say I'm a Dutch explorer. Then Basically, the Doctrine of Discovery allowed me to claim that land for the Netherlands and for the sovereign of the Netherlands. And so, like, 500 years later or whatever it is, that was still the case. That's right. Right. So so in the case of Suriname, you know, they gained independence in 1975. So they're no longer a colony of the Netherlands. But the land rights flowed from the state of the Netherlands to the state of Suriname. So the indigenous people in Suriname didn't have rights under the, you know, the authority of the Netherlands, and they don't have rights under the authority of the state of Suriname. Are you aware of any formerly colonized country that, and this might not be a fair question, Sarah, because I don't know that you've done the research, but do you know of any formerly colonized country that did end up giving its indigenous peoples land rights when they, you know, basically formed their own constitution as a sovereign nation? Uh, Bolivia. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, Bolivia, I know. That's not to say that they don't have problems. And I know that Ecuador has a new constitution that actually acknowledges the rights of the land itself. Um, but I couldn't speak with authority about that constitution in terms of how it addresses indigenous people. So there's no other country, more than likely. <laughs> I just want to, I'm, I'm not saying that to like quiz you. I'm saying that because I really think it's very important for us to underscore this. Like basically most indigenous people around the world cannot own their ancestral land or land that they were moved to. 
Well, I mean, I want to be really clear about this. Uh, that's not necessarily the case. Um, and I'm going to use our own country, the United States, as an example, because that's the legal system that I understand the best. So as an indigenous woman, it is possible for me, the individual, to own land. I can buy land. Anybody who has access to money in the market system can, can buy it, right, if it's on the market. So it's not that I'm excluded from owning land. It's that my people did not have the right to their land when settlers came and settled that land, and they still are prevented from collective land ownership. I'm going to give an example of the people about which there was the most recent Supreme Court decision. That people said, this is in the United States, we would like to own our own land. So they had a campaign and they raised money and they bought land. <laughs> their own, they bought their own land back. Um, or a portion, obviously, a portion of that land. And um, the U.S. Constitution says that Native peoples don't have to pay taxes for various, there are various things they don't have to pay taxes for. And so they said, we don't believe we should have to pay taxes because we're Indigenous people and this is our land. And the United States Supreme Court said, well, actually, you are free to own it as a private entity or private individuals, but you are you're excluded from from that original occupancy right. You are now like every other person in the United States. You don't have any special rights. Once you've lost that land, it's gone. Right. Let's say I'm an indigenous person. I could band together with a whole bunch of other indigenous people and I could buy land and own it collectively, but that doesn't mean that I have the original land rights. Does that is that is am I saying that correctly? What I'm saying is that under our constitution, you would have to pay taxes in the same way that everybody else does. Right. The understanding that you had the right originally to the fee simple title, that's just not, that's not the law. The law says that whichever European state was the first to discover that land under the doctrine of discovery has that right. Right. The right of ownership. Right. Getting back to Suriname, which I think is a useful example, what that means is that you have people living in the rainforest starting in 1975, if you just want to start thinking about it from that point of time. They were not in the moneyed economy, right? They're living traditional lifestyle in the rainforest, do not have rights to that land. And so the people who own that land, the state of Suriname, can negotiate and make arrangements to concess that land and um, have extraction go on in that land legally, and there's nothing that the indigenous people who live there and occupy that land, there's nothing they can do about it. They don't have rights. I started to uh, sort of discover and figure out how this related to my own story. And so, you know, because the lands of indigenous peoples in the Guiana Shield, including Suriname, are rich in minerals and timber and other sources of wealth, the indigenous people end up getting pushed out of their lands. They're frequently driven into urban areas without material wealth or access to jobs. 
forced to live in highly contaminated areas without basic services like food or health care, electricity. And this really parallels the formation of reservations in the United States, reservations that were intentionally in remote locations, often the poorest land base um, is too small to support the population. And then you also see this policy towards urbanization, removing indigenous people from their land in Suriname too, where children have to move to urban areas to receive education beyond the fifth grade. So they can't stay in their homes. They have to move to the city and they're housed in boarding schools hundreds of miles from their families. And there are frequent reports of mental, physical, and sexual abuse in these boarding schools. Suicide is frequent, not only in the schools themselves, but also when young people return home. What a terrible replay of the history of our own country. Right. Well, it's ongoing. I mean, it's the, it's the same context, and it's still, it's still happening, which is why it frustrates me. We talk about the doctrine of discovery as being historical. It is historical, but it's not over. It's, it's a process that's ongoing, and in many countries in the world, um, including Suriname. Hmm. So you told this powerful story about hearing Chief Wilton Littlechild speak once and how you connected his story to that of your father's. And this is about boarding schools. My father um, never knew his mother. And he was raised in a, in a religious institution for boys, and specifically for boys of color in Denver. And he was removed from his people, you know, when he was born in 1943. In the place where he grew up, he was subjected to habitual abuse, forced labor, malnutrition, he did not receive adequate health care. And, you know, he was not one of these people that we hear about in the mass media or in our narrative as a country. He wasn't one of the people who rose above his circumstances, you know? Right. He had trouble as an adult. And as his daughter, you know, I also grew up experiencing abuse and homelessness and hunger as he had. And so like a lot of indigenous people in my generation, um, I started to understand kind of how, what my own story was in middle age. And that occurred because of the truth and reconciliation process that was happening in Canada. That was publicized. You could watch sessions on YouTube. And as I was watching some of this truth and reconciliation commission and I was in conversation with people in the ecumenical movement at that time who were working on the doctrine of discovery and had the privilege of meeting Chief Wilton Littlechild and, and spending time with him, hearing him speak, but also being in expert consultations with him at the World Council of Churches. And hearing his story was so impactful for me because that was really when I started to understand that my life history that I was talking about the last time we spoke together, Sherry, was in the context of something that was bigger than me, that it wasn't just simply the failings of these two people who made bad choices, my parents. It was a systematic implementation of policy over generations of time to remove, disinherit, and disempower Indigenous people.
powerful realization that must have been for you. Well, yeah, and I guess I, I, I'll tell you about it. You know, I, I met Chief Little Child in New York City, actually, at an expert consultation of the World Council of Churches. And so he is a former member of Canada's parliament. And at that time, he was one of three commissioners of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission of Canada. When he was sharing with us at this expert consultation, there were only about, you know, a dozen people in the room. And one of the stories that he told me that was so important or impactful for me is that he, he, he grew up in the North Country, and he, he talked about how he had these furs, fur boots and fur coats and fur mittens that were traditional for his people, and it was kind of a way of being cared for to wear these things. When he arrived at boarding school, they were taken and piled up in these huge piles. So as the children arrived, they had to pile up all their things, their parkas and their gloves and their boots. These are materials that were created for these youth so that they could survive the harsh conditions in the winter. And they were piled up and they were burned by the school administrators. Residential schools were compulsory at that time, but these garments were considered garments of savages and they wanted to just rid them of that. And so the children were given cloth coats and shoes that were inadequate against the winter. The braids were cut off from the boys Siblings were separated from each other. If you violated the norm of speaking your own language while you were in residential school, you're going to be punished for that, and often uh, with corporal punishment. And so indigenous spirituality, which is the source of comfort and culture, was also banned and forbidden. So I would read about all of this, and I'd heard about it, of course, by this time in my life. But when Wilton was talking about it with such passion and emotion in his own story and, and sort of imagining the pile of adequate clothing being burned up, you know, it just, it had a powerful impact on me. What Chief Littlechild explained was that the children knew or that he knew that the comfort and protection that they had received from their parents was being stripped away. Many of them would not see their families again until they were 18. And there were a lot of families when they were reunited with their parents, um, they no longer knew their own language and they couldn't even communicate with their parents. So because their parents only spoke their own tribal language. Chief Littlechild was telling us, you know, that he had endured this. He had been one of those children and he had watched his own leather and for boots burned, um, the ones that his mother had made for him. Something I hadn't mentioned before is that Chief Littlechild is, he was also an athlete, and he's a large man, he's tall, proud, straight-backed, <laughs> from my point of view. And um, it was painful to witness um, the grief of this leader, you know, this large and imposing person, as he described a childhood of abuse, yeah. This man who had got on to be quite distinguished in his adult life, and yet I get the sense as he told the story, he was that child again. And I mean, it's just incomprehensible to me. Sarah, you and I are both the mothers of sons. Mine's 15, yours is 11. And it's just incomprehensible to me to think of 
this happening to my son? Well, I do think about that, Sherry. And, you know, um, my son has two other friends that are also Native. And I will, I will frequently tell them, you know, each one of you is a miracle. The fact that you're here at all is a miracle. Hmm. I try and imagine what it would be like to have to send my son away for federal marshals or for the sheriff to come to our home and arrest my son and take him to residential school, not because of wrongdoing, but because there is a court order to remove all indigenous people from their parents. Hmm. I have no idea how, how I could let him go. I, I don't know. I can't even imagine what that was like for the parents that lost their children. And, you know, when, Chief Littlechild was telling this story, you know, he told about his own experience, but then he also began to talk about the numbers of children who had died in residential schools, children who had died just of malnutrition and of exhaustion and overwork and from injury and abuse, influenza and other viruses that, that went untreated, basically criminal neglect. You know, as children died, in residential schools, their parents weren't always even informed. When they were informed, they weren't necessarily given their children's remains. And so the Truth and Reconciliation Commission went about the process of trying to find and exhume thousands of tiny bodies that were buried in unmarked graves on the residential school grounds. Wow. One of the things I wanted to say about this experience is that Chief Littlechild started to talk about the testimony that people gave in the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. So the adults that came forward who had attended, you know, residential schools and talking about their lives. He talked about how people explained their own inability to express emotion their own addictions, the challenges that they faced as a result of having undergone what amounts to be, you know, living in concentration camps. Yeah. One of the things he said was that, you know, their story or the horror they had witnessed had rottened inside of them. Many of them believed their parents would come for them and grew bitter waiting for their parents to come and rescue them. And so he heard people explain they had never told their own children, I love you, because they were incapable of feeling or expressing love. Or some people explain how they hurt their own children with the constant rage that they lived with or the emotional distance um, they couldn't bridge that they'd created, you know, as a protection for themselves. They talked about struggling with substance abuse and depression Many people would weep uncontrollably because they'd never expressed any of this before. And you can watch these on YouTube. I mean, this is available for people to watch. As he was telling these stories, I also wept uncontrollably. You know, it it was like I could understand for the first time, you know, the context that my father lived through, although 
he did not live in a, you know, what was a certified boarding school. He lived in a religious boys' home at that time period, which am- amounts to the same thing hundreds of miles away um, from the land that he was from. You know, I started to see my own story and the impact that my father's history had had on my life. And so the, the disruption and the, the violence that I had grown up with in my own family, I could see that that was not a personal experience alone, that it was shared by, by so many indigenous people in Canada and the United States, and that our parents, the generation ahead of us, their experience was continuing to have an influence on us and shaping our experience as well. Yes, and I think we're all—I think we're all becoming more aware, and I hope continue to become more aware in this country of just the reality of multi-generational trauma, and how that trauma continues to impact the generations beyond the people who, like you're saying, in the boarding schools. How it's—it's it's your generation is also experiencing the trauma, and you know, really, until there's healing. And reparation <laughs> and you know truth and reconciliation and reparation um you, you need to intervene in that cycle to end it i don't i don't know if that's true do you i don't want to get us off on something that we weren't going to go toward but i just think we're all becoming so much more aware in this country of the reality of multi-generational trauma and how that's been we've become i think really aware in this moment with the black lives matter movement of how that's impacted black people in this country. But I think you're telling a very similar story of multi-generational trauma experienced by Native American folks that just isn't that well known in this country yet. Right. I mean, it's, it's hidden in plain sight, right? Because I think most people do understand that there was a history of wrongdoing towards people of color, indigenous people, African-American people, for sure. And I don't think it's hard to put the dots together. I just think the dominant culture and this idea of if you're rich, it's because you deserve it. You know, if, if you're affluent, it's because you're, you're clever and wise and enterprising. I think that justification just sort of wipes away all this understanding that there may be other reasons. You know what I mean? That it's possible that people inherit wealth because of unjust laws and social structures that reinforce those laws. You're absolutely right. I think that's true in the case of bodies that were brought to the United States for the sole purpose of exploiting their labor and also for the people who were exterminated and then and then crushed simply because they existed because the colonizing power coveted their land. I think you're right that there does have to be some kind of a an opening or a reconciliation process to acknowledge that and to and to try and make amends. Like a lot of Native American children, just people in general, you know, I, I felt like I had to hide my own poverty and my abuse, and I very much believed it was my fault. 
you know, as an adult, I saw assimilation into the dominant culture as my pathway out of, you know, misery. I moved to a city as far away as I possibly could to just try and become somebody else. And as an adult, you know, at this stage of my life, I now see that that was the intention of boarding schools, that boarding schools were created to create that situation where um, people like me would remove ourselves from our homes and, and choose to assimilate. You know, without access to land, community, extended family, um, spirituality, my own culture, without those things, then my past could only hold shame for me. A question I have is how tribal children in the Ghana Shield will survive the process that is now taking place in their own lands, the theft and contamination of their lands, the consolidation of their communities into small areas that can't support them, removal of children to boarding schools. How many of the offspring will survive this violence? It's a violence of attrition, which is very much like genocide. And of those who survive, how many will make the choices that I plan to make, which is to just simply assimilate or disappear into the, into the dominant culture? The point I want to make is that doctrine of discovery is not a historical concept. It is a current, directional, intentional process with predictable ends. It's a system of laws and policy that is meant to permanently remove indigenous people from their lands and their wealth by force, by genocide, relocation, urbanization, and forced assimilation. A tiny number of indigenous people survive the battering of generations. And those who survive, many of them choose assimilation, just like I do. Well, Sarah, this has been hard to hear, but also really powerful and, you know, illuminating. Just thank you for sharing this because, um, you know, I think it really removes the veils from, like you said, that history that is hidden in plain sight. You know, thank you for being willing to share these stories that are so revelatory. And I just hope that those of us hearing this story really let these stories enrage us and inspire us to be about truth and reconciliation and, and reparations and amends. I appreciate that, Sherry, and I appreciate you listening and even being willing to engage in this painful conversation because I, I recognize that it's painful for everyone. You know, my intention is not to just put this out there because I crave sympathy. It's because it is going to require action to prevent other Indigenous people 
in the United States and around the world from experiencing extermination. You know, that extermination, that process of extermination is ongoing. And I want to be really clear, it is intentionally to remove people from their land so the riches of that land can be consumed by people who have power. It's going to require cooperation and resistance by people who believe that that's wrong. And I am anxious to to engage the church because if not the church, if not people of faith, if not if not people who say that they are following Jesus' way, if we are not the ones who are going to stand up and say, no, this is wrong, then, then who is going to do that? It's not enough to just say, this is really sad and I need comfort. We have to actively choose to change laws and policies to prevent this from going on in this process that was envisioned in the 15th century and is still in motion. Yeah, I mean, I hear in there, I mean, I think what I take away from that challenge, Sarah, is yes, we need truth and reconciliation, and yes, we need reparations, and we need to stop this juggernaut from rolling through and crushing indigenous communities, which it is still actively doing. Right. That's right. And I just have to say, it's a juggernaut that is coming for everyone, I believe. Right. <laughs> you know, that's another podcast. <laughs> well, I, and I, I, I hope we can talk about that because I think that's right. I mean, I think these processes of death, this idea that you can extract resources without regard for the impact it's going to have on the people that live there, on the air, on the water, on the soil, you know, to believe that you can do that, what it is, is destroying the systems we depend on for life. And I hope we can, in our next time together, really talk about that and the impact that it has on everyone, the whole earth and life. This podcast is hosted by us, co-produced by the Dismantling the Doctrine of Discovery Coalition and Anabaptist World. The opinions expressed here are ours, however, and do not reflect official positions of Anabaptist World. For more information, go to anabaptistworld.org and dofdmeno.org. Audio editing was done by Shannon Kaler. And theme music by Micah Peplo and Shannon. Thank you. Thank you.